Well, I have to be honest, church, um, in reading through our passage and then really beginning to study and get into it for sermon prep, I stared at a blank screen for a long time, and uh, that little cursor blinking back at me just blinked at me for a long time, and I would reread it, and I would reread it again, and reread it again, and, uh, and it felt like, and maybe, maybe you felt this way too, as you just heard our brother Dennis read the text, it just sort of felt like a travel itinerary. And, uh, and I'm asking God, I, I know, God, your, your word is profitable, and I know you want to teach us from it. You want to teach me, and you want to teach your people from it on Sunday. But it just seems like this week we're reading a travel log, and I'm not sure what to do with, uh, with, with this. It sort of just seems like it's getting Paul from one place to another place. And, um, and so, Lord, you, you're going to need to speak. And, and so I begin to ask questions of the text, uh, text that you should ask as you read uh, the text of Scripture, things like, what is this passage actually saying? Um, what, is, what is God uh, teaching me about himself in this passage? What's God teaching me about um, us as, as human beings through this passage? Why is this passage included in God's word? Why is it here in the book of Acts and not in another place in the canon of Scripture? And then another final question I ask is, what is, what is it about this text that is surprising to me? Maybe catches me off guard. And when I got to that question, it struck me because there is something surprising about this passage, and maybe you picked up on it too. And it's this, that, that, that the promptings of the Holy Spirit in this, in this passage appear to be in direct conflict with one another. Did you catch that? It, it appears that Paul is hearing one thing from the Holy Spirit, and all of these other believers are hearing something different. Paul is, is convinced, and it's clear for Paul, well-defined, that he is to go to Jerusalem. And yet all of his friends are saying the exact opposite. Don't go to Jerusalem. And in fact, in verse 4, if you look back at verse 4, even through the Spirit, they're being led to say this. And so that's, that's sort of the surprising feature in the text to me. And, uh, and from it, I think we get sort of two main themes that run throughout this passage. And I'll give them to you. Now, the first one is this, and I'll ask them in the form of questions. What cost are you willing to pay in order to follow Jesus? Like, when everyone else thinks you're crazy, when all of your friends seem to be in agreement that you've lost your mind because of something that you're doing in the pursuit of following Jesus and obedience to Christ, will you follow him then? So that's kind of the first theme that I'm seeing there. Second theme is this, and, and, uh, and, it, and perhaps it's so simple, it's so elementary that we wouldn't even catch it right away, but I want to point it out to us because it's all throughout this passage, and, and I'll ask it in the form of a question too. Are you experiencing the gift of Christian friendship? Because here's the thing. Throughout this text, Paul is repeatedly telling friends hello and goodbye. He's traveling to a place, telling folks hello, staying with them a short time, and telling them goodbye. And I think in the midst of that, we see something underscored for us in the text that we shouldn't miss. Christian friendship is an invaluable gift from God to believers in our walk with Christ. The question is, are we nurturing those friendships? Um, or if we, like Paul in our text this morning, if we made a big life decision, something that's life-changing, would we even have friends to weigh in and tell us if they think we're crazy? Because my fear is, church, that so often for us, our relationships are so surface level that I don't know that we would experience the pushback that Paul experiences here in the passage. Would we have friends that we're close enough with that would tell us they think we're crazy if they think we're crazy? Um, 
Do we have those sorts of relationships even within the body of Christ? And so let's dive into these two themes. We'll take that one first, this idea of, of Christian friendship, the invaluable gift that Christian friendship is. And we'll see this throughout our passage, but really we need to jump back up, and that's why you see it on the screens. We need to jump back up to chapter 20 because it starts in verse 36, uh, this idea of friendship with Paul. So look at chapter 20, verse 36. When he had said these things, that's, that's Paul, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Now, when you begin to pile up the verbs in those three verses, uh, those three verses give us a glimpse of the type of friends that Paul had. Look, look back at the, the, three, the three verses with me. They're kneeling. They're praying. They're weeping. They're embracing one another. They're kissing one another. And they're grieving together. It's full of action. It's full of emotion. These are beloved friends of Paul's. These Ephesian elders, they loved him and he loved them. They escort him to the ship, and though they don't agree with his decision to go, they're actually trying to convince him not to, they're probably comforting one another with the fact that even if they, they don't meet again on this earth, they'll meet again in glory. And they're, they're celebrating that together, even, even though they think this is the last time we're ever going to see Paul. It's a really moving picture of, of Christ-centered community and what we're called to. But this isn't the only glimpse that we see of Christian friendship. If you move into chapter 21 that our brother Dennis just read for us, don't get bogged down with the names of, of places and ports and towns. Because if you do that, you miss the humanity in the text. You miss the relationships. These are friends. These are Paul's loved ones. So I'll summarize for us real, quick, real quickly what we just read. Uh, you you kind of trek with me. They start out in a small boat, and they travel around the tip of Asia Minor. They briefly stop at the islands of Kos and Rhodes before reaching the port of Patera. They then get onto a larger cargo ship and head toward the town, uh, a major port city, uh, Tyre, which we know Paul already has a relationship with. And then in verse 4, it says of Tyre, while they're there, they sought out companions there. They stayed with them for a week, for seven days. These are dear Christian friends. These are relationships that Paul has. He's seeking out friends that he's already made. Note also that they urge Paul not to go to Jerusalem as well, just like the Ephesian elders uh, we'll come back to that theme in a moment because I, I told you that's another thing we see in the text. But uh, they wouldn't be urging him if they didn't love him, if they didn't have a relationship with him, if there wasn't friendship there between them. Then you get verse 5 and 6. Just like the Ephesian elders, they escort Paul to the beach where they again kneel in the sand and pray together before saying goodbye. These are beloved friends. Paul then travels south to Ptolemais, uh, and then they, they enjoyed a day of fellowship there with brothers and sisters, is what we see in verse 7, before going down to Caesarea, verse 8. Again, more friends there. Um, also informs us that Paul stayed with Philip. Now, you'll remember Philip. He's the, the one that distributed food back in chapter 6 to the widows. He's also the one that goes and preaches the gospel to the Samaritans, and they believe. And uh, he's the one that leads the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ in chapter 8. And so we've seen Philip before in our study of Acts. This is a dear and close friend. So close that he was even given a nickname, the Evangelist. Additionally, Philip's unmarried daughters there uh, prophesy. This is proof yet again to us that the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and gave these gifts to believers to affirm the truth of the gospel. Luke doesn't focus on the prophecy of these daughters. He quickly turns to the prophecy of another one, another friend, Agabus. We'll see that prophecy more in detail in a moment. But for now, just note again, this is another friend urging him not to go to Jerusalem. 
How many friends do you have that, 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 would, that, would, that would know you well enough, close enough to you in life that they would urge you to do or not to do something? And Paul has many, but they keep going. Look at verse 15 and 16. Yet again, more disciples are accompanying Paul. Once they're convinced that, hey, we're not changing this guy's mind, they, they go with him. Then you have Nason, another close friend that, that hosts Paul in his home, gives him a place to stay. And so there, just in a few 19 verses, we see this, 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 this aspect of Paul's ministry, the nature of Christian friendship in his ministry. And I want to camp out here for a second, church family, and think through the implications of this for our lives today. I think this is intentional for us that the text would, that would, that it would point out, even in all of these travels and all the people he's staying with, this idea, this concept of Christian friendship. I want to get at this idea for us, maybe thinking and applying this text by asking some questions. The first one's this. Is there a need for Christian friendship today? Is there a need for Christian friendship today? And I would say based on our text, absolutely yes. Paul surrounded himself with Christian friends and the work that God had called him to. He travels with them. He stays with them. He visits with them. He labors alongside of them. He teaches them. They journey together. They spend time together. They pray together. And it was this constant contact with these friends that we see in Paul's life. And so is that a weakness in Paul? Is it, is it merely a result of Paul's personality? Maybe he's just a people person and so this is the kind of guy he was? I don't think so. I think Paul is surrounding himself with people, with friends like this, because like every person, he's created in the image of God. Now think about this. We're built for community. God exists in perfect triune relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, and we, created in His likeness, are built for relationships. I want to dive deeper into this. Tim Keller has done some, some writing and speaking on this subject, and I think he's really helpful here. Tim Keller says, go back to the Garden of Eden. Go back to Genesis chapter 2, and what you see there, before sin entered the world, before they ate of the tree and sin entered the world, when everything was perfect, when everything was right, and God said that it was good, everything was good except one thing. Do you remember what that was? Adam was alone. Think about that. Listen to this quote from Tim Keller. He says this, Adam was not lonely because he was imperfect. He was lonely because he was perfect. The ache for friends is the only ache that's not a result of sin. God made us in such a way that we couldn't enjoy paradise without friends, human friends. Adam had the perfect quiet time with God every day, 24 hours a day, and yet he needed friends. And so if you're lonely, you're not dysfunctional. You're fine. You're lonely because you're not a tree. You're lonely because you're not a machine. You're learn lonely because you're built this way. Now, we have to be careful about this because one of the reasons you may not have friends could be because of sin. But the need for it, the passion for it, the sense of lack without it is not wrong. We need Christian friends. So let's ask the next logical question. If we need Christian friends, how do we establish those sorts of close Christian friendships? Let's think back on our text. Let's think back on Paul here. Paul's traveling place to place. He's meeting with various people, some of whom he probably had never even met before. He'd never met them on another journey. This emphasizes the answer to the question. How do we create and establish these friendships? We don't. The gospel does. The gospel creates these spiritual friendships. Christians entire, think about this, entire, they had such a bond with Paul, yet they, they hardly knew him as far as amount of time spent with him. 
But the bond was such that they could challenge his decision making and he lets them. He doesn't blow up and get mad at them. They have the relationship such that they can say, hey, don't, don't do that. Don't go down to Jerusalem. And he says, okay, I'm going to do it anyways, but I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to hear you. I'm going to hear your, your, your counsel and your wisdom. How could this be the case? It's because they had the deepest possible commonality. They both called Jesus Savior. They both called Christ Lord. They both given their lives to the King of Kings. Paul would later write a letter to the church in Ephesus. It's in your Bible. It's Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, he says this, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Did you hear that? Make every effort to keep the unity. He didn't say make every effort to attain unity, to, to get unity. He says make every effort to keep unity. The point being, we ultimately don't create Christian fellowship. God does. But it's our duty, it's our responsibility to cultivate it, to work on it, to, to, to maintain it. Tony Morita, in his commentary on this passage, says this, Because Christians share a common passion in Christ, people who may not have otherwise spent time together become, become great friends. No matter what they were or who they were before meeting Jesus, young techies can become friends with retirees, rock stars can become friends with doctors, Hip hoppers can become deep uh, friends with farmers, businessmen with hipsters, valley girls with country girls, and the diverse indi- the, 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 when diverse individuals kneel down before Jesus and do life together, it's a powerful testimony to the life-changing, friendship-forming power of the gospel. And so think about this. As it relates to this topic and this idea of Christian friendship, if we need Christian friends, we need Christian friendships, those relationships, and we don't create them, but God does, but we do maintain them and we do cultivate them, how do we do that? How do we cultivate and nurture Christian friendships? Again, let's look to the text. Let's look to the Word of God. I think there are at least four ways that we see Paul doing this in our passage or those around Paul. Number one, I'm going to give you four ways that we maintain, we cultivate these sorts of friendships. Number one, by practicing hospitality. Fellowshipping together means to share. And if you look back over our text, these believers that are around Paul, they're sharing all sorts of things. Every stop that Paul makes in chapter 21, they're sharing things. They're sharing time. They're sharing possessions. They're sharing hours of their day and the homes that they live in. And so at least four times in our text, in verse 4, he stayed with folks in Tyre. In verse 7, he stayed with folks in uh, Ptolemais. In verse 8, he stayed with folks in Caesarea. In verse 16, he stayed in the home of Nason. These believers were using their homes, their possessions, their gifts as God-given things to be used as a, as a ministry and a blessing to others. That's hospitality. And this hospitality is so important. This idea of loving one another with our stuff and our time is so important that God makes it a requirement for church leaders. Look at t- uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 8. He also commands it. It's a a requirement for church leaders. It's a command for all Christians in in Romans chapter 12. There's a deep need for this in the church today. And I'm not talking about just the church at large, like generally speaking. I'm talking about at Poplar Spring Baptist Church, there's a need for this sort of hospitality. Think about the nature of our church at Poplar Spring and how we've changed over the last five, ten years. There are very few people in our church today that are, that are in like lifetime residents of Franklin County that grew up here and have lived here their entire lives. Much of our congregation now, church family, are people that have moved here from other places, us included. And think about that. Folks moving here from all over the country, literally all over the country, they don't have relatives here, no family members here. They move here not knowing anyone. 
there's a need for hospitality in Poplar Spring Baptist Church. That we would say, I'll use my time, I'll use my possessions in my home to, to cultivate these sorts of relationships. Will we be hospitable people? I challenge you even today, for lunch today or dinner today, to invite someone, yes, maybe even someone you've never had a conversation with, over to your house for a meal. And watch how God will use that hospitality to begin to create and maintain and cultivate these sorts of deep relationships, these sorts of Christian friendships. So, good question for our growth groups as you meet throughout the week. How do we do better at this? How do we spur one another on in showing this sort of hospitality where we put our desires and and things aside so that we can love on folks and show uh, genuine hospitality inside the body of Christ and outside of the body of Christ? Second way uh, that I see the, the, the maintaining and cultivating these sorts of Christian friendships in the text. We've already mentioned this, so we won't spend a lot of time here, but showing affection, right? In chapter 20 and 21, we see visible, physical affection for one another. They're weeping together. They're embracing one another. Uh, They're kissing one another. In chapter 21, verse 5, we see whole families, wives and children, accompanying Paul down to the ship where they kneel down in the the sand on the beach, and they they pray in support of him. I want to be careful here because the application is not uh, Matt needs a big holy kiss from some of you dudes after church today. Don't, Don't do that. But we do need to find ways that we can show physical love and support for one another, visible, audible uh, support and love for one another. Uh, Maybe maybe that that handshake or that pat on the shoulder or a hug when it's appropriate. I know some of you guys ain't huggers. That's okay, too. How are we affirming one another and building up these kind of relationships with, with our body language, with the way that we come into contact with one another? Maybe it's through weeping with someone. You know they're going through a difficult season, and maybe you just need to cry with them. Maybe it's through telling them with your mouth how much they mean to you. I know that's hard to do for some of us. We don't want to get all mushy and and put our feelings out there, but uh, I think the Lord would use it in creating and maintaining these sorts of of relationships. Third thing we see in the text, the third way these are maintained and cultivated is through praying together. The Ephesian elders prayed uh, with Paul in chapter 20, verse 36. Christians entire are praying with Paul in chapter 21, verse 5. And this is not just sort of a, hey, it's the end of our worship gathering, and so let's pray to conclude our service, or let's pray to transition to the next part of our our worship gathering, or this is not, we're eating a meal together, so we should probably thank God for the the food. Like, those things are, are right and good. But these Christian friends, they realized that the difficulties Paul was headed to, they were significant. He's going to go through suffering. He's going to go through affliction. And it seems like he's convinced this is what the Lord's called him to do. So the best thing that we can do for him is pray. And they prayed together. We need to learn from this example, church, that that for deep Christian friendship to happen, it involves time of, of fervent prayer for one another and with one another. We would just spend time with God, with a brother or sister, pouring our hearts out on behalf of them and for them. And as we gauge whether we're doing this or not, I thought about this even as, as working through this text this week. If we want a litmus test for whether we're doing this at all or well, think about your own life. How have you individually, not, I'm not talking about Sunday morning in your Sunday school class that you just came from or something like that, or even in this worship gathering, but have you taken time this week individually on your own time to pray for the four people from our church family that are in a closed Muslim country this week sharing the gospel behind enemy lines where, the, where Satan would love nothing more than to snuff out their witness. Have you taken time this week to pray for them? These are our loved ones. I bet their spouses have. Why? Because they love them. 
And if, and if, and if we're going to see God cultivate and maintain these sorts of relationships among us as a church body, we've we got to be praying for one another. Fourth thing, real quickly, and, and we'll move on. Fourth way that these, these sorts of relationships are maintained uh, is by walking through big decisions together. This is hard for us, but note that uh, Paul, he, he's, he's acting on God's will, but it's not a private matter for Paul, right? I think that's so often in our culture and the way we're built, like this affects me and my family, so this is our decision. We're going we're gonna to pray. We're going to seek the Lord in it, but we never think about seeking a brother or sister, right? Like, to speak to this, will you tell me if I'm seeking the Lord right? Will you tell me if I'm missing something? This is how Paul's weighing this decision. He's following the will of God, but he's, he's, he's allowing these friends, that, that these relationships that he's had to, to speak into his life. Now, ultimately, he's going to reject that counsel because he sensed that God was leading him to Jerusalem, and he's not going to hear those voices and allow them to distract from what he believes to be the will of God. But are we even there? Are we even to the point where we're hearing these voices? We make decisions together. We walk through life together. And the Lord uses that to, to cultivate these sorts of, of Christian friendships. Well, that leads to our second major theme. So that's one, the need for, the, the benefit, the blessing of Christian friendship. The second one is this, and it's, it's the cost of following Jesus. And I asked it in the form of a question. What cost are you willing to pay for obedience to Jesus, for, for following Jesus? Now, before we make application here, I want us to observe real quickly some mixed perspectives in the passage. Uh, they're, they're pretty obvious to us, but you first have Paul's perspective. Paul's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. You see this in the way that Luke writes. As Luke writes the book of Acts, you see phrases like, the next day, or another boat, or we, we boarded another ship, or we made straight for a so-and-so location. This tells us about the stage in Paul's journey. Everything is, is quick, and it's prompt, and it's moving forward. It's, it's getting him from one place to another because that's Paul's agenda. He's moving quickly toward Jerusalem, and he wanted to be there by Pentecost. We learned that back in chapter 20, verse 16. His desire was to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. Paul also knows, because it's been revealed to him, chapter 20, verse 22 through 24, that this is going to involve suffering, that as he gets to Jerusalem, there will be affliction, there will be suffering, imprisonment, there's going to be hard times coming, and yet he's determined to get this love offering, right? Remember, he's been going and planting these churches and revisiting these churches, these Gentile believers, and they've been collecting a fund for the Jerusalem church that's been on hard times, and he's determined to get that love offering to the Jerusalem church. He doesn't care about the danger. It's been made clear to him. You're going to suffer. He cares about following God's will no matter the cost. So that's, that's Paul's perspective. But if you look further, there's some other perspectives in the text. And, and one is the, the Christians in Tyre, verses 4 through 6. They told Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Through the Spirit even, they told Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. They've urged him is the word in the text. They begged, don't, don't do this. And then you have the perspective of Christians in Caesarea. And this is uh, where Paul stays with Philip, right? And we meet Agabus here, who, by the way, if, you, if, you, if that name sounds familiar to you, it should. Because back in chapter 11, we've already seen Agabus, and he, he's a prophet, not a false prophet. He's a prophet that gets it right, right? He predicts this famine is coming, and that's the reason they took up this, this collection. And so Agabus has proven to be a prophet that speaks accurately. And so Agabus gives Paul this interesting object lesson takes Paul's belt, which normally would have been wrapped around him several times. That's the way they would have worn that belt. And he takes it and he ties his hands and feet. And he says, this is what's going to happen, verse 11, this is what's going to happen to Paul. If you go into Jerusalem, they're going to tie you up. They're going to put you in bondage and they're going to hand you over to the Gentiles. 
He's clearly warning him. He's prophetically warning him of all that's going to happen if he goes to Jerusalem. And as a result of this prophecy, these Christians in Caesarea, like those in Tyre, are saying, don't go. Paul, please don't go. Don't do it. So there's the perspective of the Christians in Caesarea. And then finally, and this one's a little tougher to see, you have the perspective of Luke. Right? Remember, Luke's writing the book of Acts. And maybe you didn't notice this, but he includes himself in the group of people that are urging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. You see this with his use of, of we, the, the third person uh, uh, plural. Um, he's, he's saying, we, we, we are urging, we urged him, don't, don't do this. Don't, don't go to Jerusalem. Implying that he too, one of Paul's closest friends and ministry partners, co-missionaries, urging him to change his plan. He rejects that counsel. In verse 14, these believers respected his decision. And so as we think about this, it's possibly a confusing mix of counsel, guidance. I want us to consider a striking similarity here, right? Think about this. Paul is a man on a mission with his face set toward Jerusalem. I'm going to say that again because some of you didn't catch that. Some of you might have. Paul is a man on a mission with his face set toward Jerusalem. That if that made you think of Jesus, then you got it, because that's what Jesus did near the end of his ministry in Galilee. He had his face set like a flint, the text says, toward Jerusalem. And there's a similarity here. When you think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus didn't, didn't look forward to the suffering. He knew it was coming. He wasn't looking forward to it. In fact, he asked, Lord, if, if it be any other way. And yet he said, but, but your will be done. Your will be done. And here's Paul in deep anguish, Right? You could even say he's having his own Garden of Gethsemane moment in verse 13. Look at verse 13. Paul says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. I'm not, I'm not only ready to be in prison, I'm willing to die for Jesus if that's what it means. He's in, he's in, he's in anguish. And so if that's the case, if, if Paul here is not being sinful, if he's not being selfish, if he's not being arrogant, but he's truly desiring to follow the will of God, even in the face of suffering, even though knowing affliction is coming, then what do we make of his friends here that are counseling him to do the opposite? All right? And then even more so, verse 4, where it says, through the Spirit, they're urging him to do the opposite. How do we reconcile that? How do we, how do we deal with where it seems like, like, like wisdom through the Holy Spirit is contradictory? Let me remind you of another conversation with Jesus, since we've made this connection, right, that, that, that Paul appears to be doing something that, that Jesus did. Uh, going towards suffering because he believes it to be the will of God, just as Jesus did. Let me remind you of another conversation. You remember when Jesus asked uh, his disciples, who do men say that I am? Remember that conversation? And, uh, and, 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 and the disciples piped up. Some say Elijah. Uh, some say you're one of, the, one of the prophets. Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And, uh, and Peter, he throws his hand up, and I think I know the answer, right? And Jesus says, okay, go ahead, Peter. And he says, you're the, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ of God, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, excellent answer, Peter. Come, come and sit at the front of the class. Great job. That's exactly right. And Peter's excited about his place at the front of the class. And Jesus says, now that we've established my identity, who I am, thanks, thank you, Peter, for giving us that right answer, let me tell you how things are going to go. And Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be handed over to evil men. And he's going to be killed. He's going to be put together. He's going to suffer and die, but he's going to be raised on the third day. And out of nowhere, boom, Peter stands back up, front of the clouds. He says, Jesus, are you crazy? 
Have you lost your mind? I'm not going to let anybody lay a finger on you. Nobody's going to touch you. And just that quickly, Jesus replies, okay, Peter, you've had your fun at the front of the class. Now go sit and time out. Because you went from glory to absolute foolishness in a matter of a few minutes, you've missed it completely. Get behind me, Satan. Now, why would I bring up that story, even in the, the Matt James paraphrase, if you're wondering for where you can find that translation of the Bible, it's, uh, it's not for sale. Uh, here's the thing. We can certainly commend Peter for being concerned with Jesus' welfare. His heart's in the right place. He doesn't want anything to happen to, to, to Jesus. His heart's in the right place, and we can commend him for that. But don't miss this. Peter's uh, reaction to Jesus about his announcement uh, to go to Jerusalem and to, to ultimately die is at one and the same time admirable and wrong. <laughs> do, do you see that? I mean, it's admirable that Peter would want to protect Jesus, but it's dead wrong. And we jump back to Acts 21, and we see the situation with Paul. Believers urging him, don't go to Jerusalem. Verse 12, we, Luke included, pleaded with Paul not to go back to Jerusalem. That's what verse 12 says. Their concern for Paul's protection is admirable and wrong. <laughs> right? Now, we have to be careful here. There's a couple important distinctions that we need to be, need to be making right here. And, and, and I'm going to spend a lot of time here. But theologically speaking, we need to understand a couple things. First, don't miss this. God's word is infallible. God's word, his perfect will, will not fail. It's going to be accomplished. Our interpretation of his word is not infallible. Right? Does that make sense? His word, perfect. Our interpretation of his word, not perfect. And so we must consider, is, anytime we have a decision, whether it's affecting us or other people, whether it's a preference on things and the way that we do life or whatever the case may be, we need to consider, is this clearly God's word or is this my interpretation of his word? If it's his word, it won't fail. If it's our interpretation, then we need to have humility and say, this is my interpretation. This is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm sensing, though it could be wrong, right? That's an important distinction to make. Second important distinction here, and I'm getting this from John Stott. In his commentary, he says this. We should draw a distinction between a prediction, think Agabus and his prophecy, and a prohibition, right? Agabus simply predicted what would happen. The conclusions that Paul's friends made on that information are not infallible. You see what Stott's saying? The, the prophecy, the prophecy was dead on. You're going to suffer. You're going to face affliction. Their interpretation, their, their, uh, their use of that information was not infallible. Don't go. Right? That's the interpretation. You're going to suffer, don't go. They, had, they made human deductions based on a divine prophecy. Right? So in other words, I'm going to bring this down for us. Verse 4, when it was through the Spirit that they're telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. It's safe to say that the warning of what would happen is divine. It's God-given. The urging based on that warning is human. It's human emotion. And so this is consistent with what we've already seen in, in the book of Acts, in, in, in chapter 20, in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 23. The Spirit of God confirms to Paul, you're going to suffer. And yet at the same time, he compels him to go anyways, right? So Paul's at the same time compelled to go, knowing I'm going to suffer. That's exactly what's happening here with Agabus. You're going to suffer. People are pleading, don't go, Paul. And so for us, Paul, we need to see Paul's making a difficult decision. 
The Holy Spirit has laid it all out there, told Paul numerous times through numerous people that he would uh, suffer if he goes to Jerusalem. And yet the Holy Spirit is at the same time giving him supernatural desire to be obedient, to pay the cost, to go and, and do exactly what God had called him. And in the midst of that battle in Paul's heart, right? You've got to imagine there's already a battle going on, waging war in his heart over what to do here. The people who love him are selfishly saying, no, stay with us. Pick the safe option. Pick the option where you get to live and you get to do ministry among us. They were well-intended, but they were wrong. And so as we wrap up this morning and, and, and make some application of this text, how does a text like this change the way we think? How does it change the way we act? Well, first, I'm going to get to some application. I'm going to give us some specific applications. But even in the, in, the, in, the, in the circumstances of Paul with these friends, we need to be careful about how we give advice and wisdom. We need to be humble in our perspectives on, on whatever. Whether it's climate change or our convictions on a passage of Scripture. Uh, the Word of God is infallible. Our interpretation and our advice from it is not. right. And so let me give you, I'll give you five points of application here from the text that change the way we think, uh, change the way we live, the way we think or act. Uh, and these are from, again, from Marita's commentary on this section. I thought he hit the nail on the head with these five takeaways. And so if these are helpful, give him credit, not me. Number one, love people, but love Jesus more. Love people, but love Jesus more. Paul clearly loved these friends. He loved them dearly, and they loved him in return. And yet he treasured Christ. He valued obedience to Christ more than he loved them. And we must resist the urge to be people pleasers. No one or nothing in this planet or on this planet is more valuable than Jesus. And so can we say with Paul, I'm willing to die if that's what Jesus calls me to. Treasure Christ supremely. Number two, second application here. Value input, value advice, value counsel, but follow God's will, right? Paul listened to the counsel of others. He, he was not too prideful. I mean, this is an apostle. This is a guy who met Jesus on the Damascus Road, who is planting and starting churches all over uh, the, the Middle East, and yet he had the humility to hear and, and listen to these brothers and sisters. Scripture is full of exhortations and warnings about what happens when we won't hear counsel, right? Think of the book of Proverbs. It's full of these warnings. Refusing a, a Christian brother or sister to speak into our life, that's foolish. And yet, at the end of the day... Follow Jesus. Even if it makes you look foolish, follow Jesus. Obedience to him is more important than our reputation. Number three. Number three. There's something worse than dying, and it's not living. There's something worse than dying, and it is not living. Life is short. We don't, don't waste it. Pour yourself out for the good of others and for the glory of King Jesus, and you'll find life there, real life there. This will involve risk. It will involve hardship. It will come with suffering, but you'll find that it's worth it. Number four, when you follow Jesus, you'll find that you're not alone and you won't regret it. When you follow Jesus, you'll find that you're not alone and you won't regret it. Jesus is our unfailing friend. He's with us as we make disciples of all nations. That's his promise in Matthew chapter 28. So you can be assured if you're making disciples of all nations, Jesus is with you. He's promised his presence. And even though we go through suffering, even though suffering is inevitable, following Jesus is worth it. Life is not the end. The best is yet to come. Think about this. Just, just think about this. There is no one, 
There is no one in heaven standing before King Jesus, finally seeing the Christ face to face, worshiping King Jesus face to face, that's saying, man, I regret this. I really wish I'd have lived for myself. They really overhyped this whole thing. No one's saying that. Why? Because he's worth it. You won't regret it. Pour your life out for King Jesus and serving others, and you'll find that when you're standing before him in glory, it was worth every second. Number five, following Jesus is costly, but not following Jesus is more costly. Following Jesus is costly, but not following Jesus is more costly. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you've never repented of your sins and trusted his finished work on the cross, look at this example of Paul and you may say, man, he, he was warned. He was warned what would happen and he went anyways. What a waste. Like, like, even pragmatically speaking, couldn't he have been of more good if he would have just avoided Jerusalem and kept preaching about Jesus? He could have led so many more people to salvation in Christ. What a waste. But the Bible gives us a different perspective. Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, verse 36 says, What does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words before this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes into the glory of his Father. Here's the testimony of Scripture. Life is short. It's gone like this. It can be gone in a moment. And so if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, know this, that the King of Heaven came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. And he traded places with you. He took the, the penalty for your sin. He took the death that you deserved. And he went to Calvary. And he bled and he died a criminal's death so that your sins could be forgiven. And the scriptures tell us if you believe upon Christ and repent of your sins, you will be saved. That's the invitation for you here today if you're, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. Following Jesus is costly. You will suffer. But not following Jesus is eternally more costly. The only thing more costly than being a disciple of Jesus is not being a disciple of Jesus. And so follow Jesus now. Experience unspeakable joy for all eternity. Reject Jesus now and experience eternal suffering for all of eternity. There is no middle way. There's no third option. That's it. And so call upon Jesus today and be saved. In 2007, December of 2007, uh, Tom Brady uh, was featured on uh, 60 Minutes, a CBS show 60 Minutes. And uh, at that time, 12 years ago, he was then a, a three-time Super Bowl champ. And, uh, and one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the game, even at, at that point, was already getting that sort of praise. He literally married a, a supermodel. He had a contract worth millions of dollars. By the world's standards, he had he'd accomplished everything. I mean, he, he accomplished every goal that a, that a dude that wanted to be an athlete could accomplish. He was at the peak of his career. Well, it seemed like then, and he's still playing now, so maybe not. But he'd accomplished it all. And yet on that 60 Minutes interview, he said this. This, this is a quote from Tom Brady. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. <laughs> I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think, God, there's got to be something more to it than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be all that life's cracked up to be. Now, I don't know anything about the state of Tom Brady's soul. I don't know if he was a Christian then or if he's a Christian now. I don't, I don't, I don't know anything about the spiritual state of, 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 of Tom Brady. But I do hear in his voice a man that's accomplished everything. 
And he's looking back on it and going, it wasn't enough. I've done it and it wasn't enough. And I see Paul who says, man, I'm not only willing to be put into prison. I'm willing to die if that's what it means to follow Jesus. And I look at that and I go, the contrast is so clear to me. Choose Christ. And that way it doesn't matter if you're winning Super Bowls or if you're getting thrown into prison. He's worth it. Like, like, like eternally, it's, it's more significant to, to give your life to Christ than to have everything this world has to offer. That's the invitation to you today. Follow Christ. Trust him for salvation. Let's pray together. Corey, if you'd come lead us in time of response. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you that even in a text like this where it just appears to be a travel log, you have truth for us. You have life for us through the, the word of God, by the spirit of God. This, this word is meant to give us life and encouragement. It's meant to knit us together as a family of God in unity. God, would you do that supernaturally by the power of your spirit today? Would you help us to see the need for and be by, by the power of your, your spirit compelled to? maintain and and nourish these sorts of Christian friendships? And will you help us to count the cost today? That we wouldn't put our hand to the plow and, and look back, but that we would go forward, straining forward for the glory of King Jesus, no matter what suffering, affliction comes into our life. And Jesus, I pray today that if there's someone here that's never trusted you for salvation, that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be a day of repentance and new birth. That the old man would, 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 be, would be buried and raised to new life in Christ. God, would you do a work in our hearts today? As we respond to your word, Jesus, this is your time. You do with it as you see fit in each and every heart. And we'll praise you and give you glory. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.